0: Hey there friends, welcome to the Being Brown and Bold podcast. I'm your host, Jess Thomas. We are so glad you are joining us for all our amazing conversations about stepping out of our comfort zone, being bold and taking chances. Today, I get to chat with Rina Nainen. She is a journalist and an entrepreneur. She is the founder of Good Trouble Productions, a media company focused on creating content with purpose. As a TV journalist, she anchored for ABC, CBS, and Fox News. She also created two top-rated podcasts, Ask Lisa, The Psychology of Parenting, and Hero, The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women with Foreign Policy and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Her family is originally from Kerala, India. Rena began her career as a reporter in Baghdad. She was sent to cover the Saddam Hussein trial. The day she arrived, her hotel was car bombed four times in 10 minutes. That moment launched her international reporting career. She soon became Middle East correspondent for Fox News, where she reported from Lebanon to Libya. She was seven months pregnant when she traveled to meet Hezbollah officials in the suburbs of Beirut. Rena also covered the Mumbai attacks for Fox News. During her time in the Middle East, She interviewed U.S. President Jimmy Carter, Hamas militant leader Mahmoud Zahar, Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert, and she's also covered wars in Gaza, Benghazi, Lebanon, and Iraq. In 2012, she became the White House correspondent for ABC News, where she covered the Obama White House. She also traveled with Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Rena anchored World News Now and the early morning show America This Morning. She later went on to anchor the CBS Saturday Night Weekend News and for CBS's digital network, CBSN. She is most passionate about foreign affairs, news, and content innovation. Rena, it is so great to have you today on the podcast. Thank you so much for that generous introduction, Jess. I'm like, I've been following you, I don't know, like, It feels like 20 years to see your whole, so as I'm reading your bio, I'm like, I remember that. I remember that. It's So So, nice. And especially because we both have the same um, Indian background, I remember watching all those times and thinking, she's one of us. She's a woman. She's South Indian, and she's out there doing all these amazing things. But before we get into that, (laughs) I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, tell us about yourself. What does it mean to be you?
1: Oh, what a good question. What does it mean to be you? Well, first I will say it's ever evolving. Um, If you were to ask me that question, at 14 versus 24 versus 34, I think uh, that's always a good thing. But I think in this moment, what does it mean to be me? I would say it means to take risks and try to be unafraid um, and do the uncomfortable.
0: Mm, That's, risky sounding (laughs) like that sounds like uh obviously bold which is the theme of our podcast um so yeah I want to talk more about that before that you know we both come from a Kerala Indian background and names mean something you know we have like our given name our house name our family name and even within India when you hear somebody's name, it also is a clue to where they're from. So tell us about your name, maybe some history behind it um, and any other names associated with
1: you. Well, I've always wanted to know more about Rina and also our last name, Nainen. So if anybody knows anything, you've got to write into the podcast or DM me on Instagram so I can I can learn more about it. But um it's funny, I don't really know much about my name um, until I went to Israel and was based in Jerusalem for Fox News Channel. And um everyone in the bureau said, Do you know in Hebrew, Rina is simha? It means happiness. So um so that was uh And they always said, you're so bubbly, it's kind of fitting. But um, yeah, no, I'd love to learn more about my name. I I don't know um, much more than that, really.
0: Yeah. Uh, And tell me the name of your company, how you got that name as well.
1: Mm. Good Trouble Productions um, is based off of the concept of the phrase from the late Congressman John Lewis of Georgia, who um, fought very hard for for the freedom of, for civil during the civil rights movement. And he always said that there needs to be good trouble, necessary trouble. And I've always felt that in media, there needs to be good trouble, some necessary trouble because 74% of Americans no longer trust the news. That's a, a Pew statistic. And so that was something that always gnawed at my heart. Um, how do we get people to restore their faith in news? Um, and that journey has taken me beyond news but into entrepreneurship as well.
0: That's really great. Yeah, I I love Good Trouble. And there's actually in Nashville, I'm in Tennessee, but if you go to Nashville, there's a huge mural with John Lewis's face and um, Good Trouble up there. And and it's just encouraging to see how our country has. It's not uncommon now to hear that phrase used for the purpose of standing up for what is right. So I love that that's your company. can you share a little bit about your cultural heritage and how it has informed your work and your life?
1: Mm. Well, I think, you know, as you know, having Malayali parents, parents from Kerala, um, so much of the culture was embedded in growing up from the food to the language. I speak fluent Malayalam, um, and my parents still speak Malayalam to me. I uh, try to speak some Malayalam to my kids who are half um, Irish and Italian as well. Um, uh, and, and I think it's just important. We have a festival in Kerala called Ornam, which is a harvest festival uh, in the fall. And my husband loves, it's his favorite holiday of the year. My aunt does a huge spread, it's all vegetarian. And um, it's sort of the one holiday where Muslims, Hindus and Christians all gather together and you have this vegetarian meal on a banana leaf. And when I was growing up, we had a very small uh, Malayali community. It's It has blossomed to like, I think there's two or three different Malayali organizations now in Tampa, Florida. But um, the focus on on that was so important and so lovely. And I think the lesson that I learned was it doesn't matter what your religion or your faith is, that there's always uh, a common point of of getting together. And often that is food. So Onam's for me holds such big significance, that festival. Um, We we celebrate with my kids. Um, My aunt, Anianti, does a a big thali, a big um, spread, dinner spread. And I think I am very proud to be Malayali. And um, I I feel it in my veins and um, I I love being part of that community.
0: I'm super impressed that you're fluent in Malayalam because I know very little, like my parents didn't speak to us in Malayalam so I didn't learn it. And when I hear other people who grew up in this country but they're fluent, I'm like, oh man, I missed the boat on that one. Well, you know, I. I I can
1: totally understand where you're coming from, but in the 70s and 80s, the thinking was don't teach kids another language. It's only going to confuse them. And our parents were the first generation to come here and kind of figure things out. And um, I think subsequent generations understood that having multiple languages are really good. Um, I think I sort of broke through the barrier when I was about 12 for whatever reason of really being fluent and able to speak back and forth. Um, but I will say, Jesse, it's never too late. I um, have found inspiration from somebody who I think you know. Um, uh, she is American, uh, but she, her husband is Malayali. Um, you know who I'm talking about? Eliza.
0: And, yeah, Ellie um, Kuti. Um, is that her handle on Instagram? I think that's yeah, her Yeah, right? she's actually on this podcast. She was like my third or fourth guest. She's great. great. Yeah. And um, one interesting thing with her, she talks about when you learn from, you know, why don't you just ask your family or friends to teach you? She's like, they don't know grammatically correct and how to teach it to you. Wow. That's
1: a great point. Yeah. So, but, yeah. well, I think it's never too late and there's so many resources. She's doing such a great job in, in highlighting um, uh, how how to speak and learn. So um, I would always say embrace it. It's never too yeah. late. Yeah.
0: I need to do that. You know, it's the making time to do that's the right. important things, even though it's not urgent. Um, right. And then I should have my kids in on <laughs> that. <what laughs> so when you were little, what did you imagine your life would be like as an adult? Ooh, well, I always knew
1: I wanted to do television journalism from a very young age. I think I was five and watching Barbara Walters. And back then there were really only three television channels, ABC, NBC, and CBS. Um, so every night we watched um 2020 and also primetime live and uh her interviews were always fascinating um so i knew early on that i i wanted to work in the tv space i think what changed was um i didn't know that i would have the opportunity to pivot into entrepreneurship and so i didn't think in this stage of life that i would find something i loved as equally as much as doing the news and i didn't think that we would see such abysmal ratings for the news and um trust in the news plummet the way it has and um, and those are two things that that I think about all the time
0: so then i'm guessing then as far as your vocational path you didn't have many difficulties cuz you already were kind of focused when you were young
1: yeah, I think I knew very early on this was what I wanted to do. I went to college at George Washington. My father said go to DC. That's the center of political journalism. You need to be able to see it and, and meet people and understand how Washington works. And that was really terrific advice and um loved my time there. Um, but I think um, you know, so much has changed from 20 years ago when I went to college and in the world, and um it's still something I'm very passionate about.
0: Yeah, it's been neat to see. Um, you know, you have been everywhere and especially when you were out on the field doing foreign correspondence, but you haven't done that in a while. Um, And so even though you're still a journalist, it's really changed over the years. What are some things that you miss from what you used to do that you're not doing right now? Mm.
1: Um, I miss the travel now, especially post-COVID when we were locked down and being able to really Um, There, nothing replaces being on the ground and talking to people and getting insights and and knowledge. Um, You know, today I'm hosting a talk on uh, Russia and Ukraine and the war there with the Council on Foreign Relations and that audio is available on their website if you want to listen and get a sense but so I feel like while I'm not practicing as a journalist live every day, I'm still very much uh, enmeshed in, in what is breaking news and talking to people. And I think when you've spent 20 years, you've developed sources and contacts and they still wanna meet. And um, and, and so I, I feel very much that side of, of my journalism brain hasn't left and it's still
0: being engaged. That's great. I have noted. I've met different people especially anchor people, Mm -hmm. and their background is actually, it's kind of, it's like double major journalism, but like um, acting and like things in front of the camera. Mm -hmm. And so their interests were more being in front of the camera, not so much serious journalism. And then there are other people who just are watching what's happening on TV and they think, oh, being in front of the camera is so glamorous. Mm -hmm. What would you say to people who might think this way? Mm.
1: Well, I can understand. I think a lot of people feel like anchoring is just reading the headlines and and moving forward and having hair and makeup done. And um, it really isn't. I think people now, I mean, you're a creator, you're creating and editing and putting together content every day people are just more savvy of that connection and who really knows their stuff, who's engaged and who isn't, who's just reading from a prompter. Um, so I think just the nature of being on television, people think it's glamorous and it's great, but I think you very quickly can tell the people who are in it for the right reasons and those who aren't.
0: And really care about like the stories that they're reporting and sharing about.
1: I think, yeah, exactly, Jess. I think that it really shines through and people have such a truth meter, um, especially because they're creating content and they see things and they're just so much more aware from just 10 years ago that it's really hard to fool people um, Mm -hmm. and get away with it.
0: Yeah, agreed. So the podcast Being Brown and Bold, um, can you tell us in your career, what's probably one of like the more bolder things, boldest things that you've done in your career? Mm.
1: I don't know that they felt bold necessarily when I did them, but maybe looking back, um, the first one would definitely be um, going to Iraq um, and, and pushing for that. I really had spent a lot of time studying the history, understanding what was happening on the ground, getting to understand the culture and the people and the issues. And so finally I had begged and begged and begged and essentially... was like 18 months of waiting. i had finally been given this opportunity because Fox was desperate. They needed to have someone on the ground to cover the Saddam Hussein trial. And so they sent me to do that. Um, But I think that when you don't have opportunity, you've still always got to be preparing your steps and doing the work for when that moment of opportunity presents itself, that you're not just, um, you're someone who could hold their own. And I think often we wish things would happen to us sooner than they do. But that preparation makes a difference of whether you succeed or you fail, whether you sink or you swim. And for me, I had really wanted to do this like two or three years earlier. But when I look back, the timing felt like an eternity at that moment of getting that opportunity. But when I got that opportunity, I had really been prepared for it. And I think that says a lot too of being able to meet opportunity with your preparation.
0: That's so wise because I think a lot of times we want that immediate gratification of like, I have this idea or I'm really passionate about this and I want it to like just happen, yeah. but to have that mentality of like, no, like I want to be thorough. And it, obviously this was a passion of yours because you were willing to put in the time to prepare, to read, to study, so that when it happened, you were already there. Was it scary for you being there? Because, I mean, you talk about, okay, there's a car bombing right at your hotel.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, just to give you a sense of it, the wall of my hotel, I didn't have a wall for the rest of the time I was there, for the remaining six weeks I was there. Um, It had just fully blown out that wall. Um, And what's wild is I had just, I had been sitting at my desk doing some work um, at that very location. And we heard the first bomb and we moved and, and took shelter. And so there were, Four bombs. Um, and so I think, you know, when you're not used to living in a war-torn country, you, there are sounds that you get used to uh, of, of gunfire and shelling and bombings. And this, um, what was so scary about it was it was getting closer and closer and closer until that final impact. So we didn't, I fully didn't know when it was over, but the locals had this sixth sense and understood when it was over and that we were safe and could come out of, of the shelter location. So um, again, I think that was literally an opportunity of, I had strength in understanding that I knew the story that after being bombed could then go on and explain. And and when it happened, it was a time when this really wasn't happening to journalists. They weren't, Al Qaeda wasn't bombing journalists. And um, so this was sort of a big big moment, a big game changer and and had lots of journalists questioning their security and, and what could come next.
0: Yeah, wow. Okay, so again, being Brown. What did your parents think? <laughs> uh, well, lucky for me my parents were huge news
1: consumers. They found value in it. They thought it was important, which I think most of our Malayali community and Indians in general really um val- do value the news, uh, especially our parents' generation. And um they were hugely supportive, but I think it is like Abraham taking Isaac to sacrifice, you know, like I think they were very well aware of the risks that I was going into. And then literally the day I arrived for that car bomb to happen. So I give them a lot of credit for also having faith and courage and and for letting me go. I, I don't know that I would do, I would feel as <laughs> the same way with my child now that I'm a mom
0: of two, but um, i really now have come to appreciate that. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, I'm so like thankful for the ways that your family really encouraged you and supported you in all these dreams. And you were saying in Tampa, that wasn't like a huge uh, Malayali community, but did you have other Malayali friends about your age and um, if so, were, like your career goals or you know what you want for your life, was it different from what they were thinking of for their own lives?
1: Oh, we have a really tight knit group of Malayali friends that we grew up with. It was small, but very tight. Everybody knew each other in the 80s and early 90s. Um, and so that was sweet and and do have close friends from childhood growing up. But no, I think um, as I sort of came of age, there was a really smaller group of people of journalists who um, who wanted who were indian and wanted to become journalists so it was i definitely feel like we were sort of in that first pod of of people trying to make a difference but now it's that's not the case i mean it's pretty remarkable to see um just how the diaspora has taken over and, and from local to national i think there's been some really wonderful moves in in tv news especially for for the indian population
0: yeah and even like how much I see more of representation, even in holidays. I think it was like Good Morning America, like I've seen they're covering Holy Festival and Diwali, which was unheard of back when you were starting.
1: That's right. That's so true. Um, We've learned to embrace so many different faiths and perspectives and culture. And I think people enjoy seeing that and learning that genuinely. I think people really like to, to know and understand. And, you know, I love like your journey too of how you're in Knoxville, Tennessee, and uh, you know in the South, and able to show off your Indian roots and be on local TV, and you know from from chai cookies to whatever you're making that you are really able to um, expose this to a whole audience that might be unaware but probably wants to learn. And there's no better way to teach culture than through food.
0: Yeah, I agree. Thanks, Reena. Yeah, I I feel like when I first started, you know, especially because I was born and raised here. I would say I have a very American palate. And by American, I mean um, global because America is the melting pot, right? So I love my Chinese stir fry as much as I love my pizza, as much as I love my dosha and sambar. Um, And when I started, when we moved to the South and realized there's not a lot of exposure. We had a lot of people who were kind to us and, they were just more like, we don't know anything about your culture, and they don't know how to ask. And so I started using chai as a way to introduce spi- Indian spices, which then went to foods. And I do these private dinners where I expose them to true Kerala food, like mm. kappa mean curry. And wow. they are just like, this is because you can't get that in an Indian restaurant, right. uh, at least maybe in New York City, but not a lot of places. Couple, um, which is we should say is yucca and fish curry, which you know yes. has this spicy, tangy um it's like it's, a tamarind yep. sour with this tapioca mash. Um and so I, I think there's this open, I think that's what's happened. There's been now this openness to like the people who are used to a traditional American way of doing things are realizing, and I think it's the internet, like the world has gotten smaller and we're exposed to more things and different things. And it's okay to be different now. Where I I didn't feel like growing up, it was okay to be different.
1: I agree with you. It was not cool to be different um, in the 80s and 90s, but I think so much has changed and I'm grateful that 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 has changed and there's this appreciation um, of Indian food wherever you go. I mean, I would go to war zones and people would ask me to cook chicken curry. You know, I think (laughs) uh, there's just an appreciation and a love for Indian food, Um, but you're right. Growing up, there really wasn't. And And I imagine also the other issue is in Knoxville, Tennessee, there probably weren't any Indian stores to get sort of the basic staples and spices and things that
0: you would need. There was When we moved here, there was one tiny store and now they just opened their third Indian store. They're still like mom and pop shops. They're not like mega stores, but it's, but when you walk in there there's a lot of non-Indians shopping there which I think is awesome because mm-hmm. they're learning about different things. And big secret is if you're like gluten-free or one thing, like you can buy things in bulk for way cheaper than like both. <laughs> so true, so true, yeah. So you mentioned that you are um, a wife, a mom of two. Um, And I know in Brown families, uh, a central focus is marriage. Um, Where I grew up in the Northeast, I'm gonna guess it's different in Florida, but in the Northeast, uh, we were told in our Indian community, you all need to focus on your education. Then you get your job, don't think about dating. Then after you get your job, you can think about marriage and then maybe you can choose your spouse, but, you shouldn't spend so much time worrying about that. After you get married, then you can like go on dates. And so, we all felt that growing up. Did you have any of that, where in the Tampa area, in your Malayali community, or even in your own home?
1: Um, did I have any
0: like those same to those types of sentiments? Where
1: yes, yeah, definitely. No, I think that that was just very common uh, for yeah. our, our generation, kind of growing up. Um, but you know, I have to tell you, I I was just so focused. I think in high school and college of what I wanted to achieve work wise. That, um, um, but I think my parents were also really understanding and kind of got it. And um, when you do get up that age, which is like by twenty four, um, you know the clock starts ticking, and and your aunt, uncles and aunties all all make that very clear. So. Um, When I found my husband I was um, in my late 20s and we were both based in Jerusalem and so my parents were absolutely thrilled and then they met their parents and they realized oh my God this is a family that loves being together with the family and they're really good humans and to this day they just have such a warm bond and really, really like each other. In fact, both of them, both sets of parents ended up planning our wedding and doing all the things that, that you know, brides and grooms should, should be doing because we were based in Jerusalem. And so they went to all the, the meal tastings. They looked at all the venues, all the churches. And, um, uh, and, and it was really a sweet opportunity for both of the families to bond. Um, but I think it was one of these instances where we realized oh, we really married into the same family. That's
0: awesome. Yeah, because for in many cases, you don't just marry the person, you marry the family, right? It's Very true. Yeah, very especially true. I feel like Eastern cultures in general, like all of Africa, Asia, like we all like have that mentality that you're going to be one big family. Not that you necessarily do everything with them or that you even like them, but like you marry into the family and it's a cultural value to do that.
1: You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right.
0: Um, As you have encountered so many cultures, traveling everywhere, meeting people of every different background, um, and then you grew up in a Indian Christian like context, right? Mm -hmm. So as you've seen faith expressed differently around the world, has any faith or belief system informed your outlook in life?
1: Um, I just think, you know, whether it's in a mosque or a temple um or a church, I think I have always been very attuned to feeling sort of that power um of, of prayer and of God and of people coming together um, in worship. Uh whatever country I've been, I've always I-, I do love going to places of worship because you learn so much about the culture and the people um and and their strength and, and their faith. Um so I've witnessed that and I've seen that a lot. And I think that's been one of the joys of of being able to cover different countries abroad is, is seeing the importance of that and, and also seeing how generations, each generation sort of takes to it differently.
0: Yeah, I, you know, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to start this podcast too, is that I feel like unless you have that exposure You kind of stay in your own circles, which usually are people that look like you, talk like you, think like you. And I wanted to have this platform where listeners could hear other perspectives and get to know people because then they become people and they are not those people, that religion, that Mm -hmm. part of the world, kind of to like help us care for each other and be empathetic towards each other. So I love your answer. Um, And even walking into different houses of worship. What I find fascinating, because I love doing that no matter where I am, because those houses of worship were really focused on God, and this building was meant to be a place, an environment where I am supposed to either have my, you know, like cathedrals, they had these high ceilings because they wanted, the architects wanted your eyes to look up, because that's where God is, Mm -hmm. Um, and to have beauty, I mean, I have been in an ugly church, but like, not on like they just didn't have money, but like churches are built to be beautiful. Um, Mats, I just went to this temple in Atla- outside of Atlanta and the architecture is, but I mean, I thought I was in India. I didn't realize I was in Atlanta. Wow. So yeah, I love that, that there is this focus on who is God and how do I like have this relationship with God and and turn to prayer. So yeah, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. So you've had this long journalism career, which has like turned the corner a little bit because now you're into podcasting. Tell me like how that switchover happened.
1: Well, you know, um, I have always wanted to focus, you know, our our, our tagline for our company is Good Trouble Productions, content with purpose. And one of the issues I've had with, with just daily TV journalism and news is there really isn't the bandwidth to go back and revisit stories when a school shooting happens, to stay with it and, and delve deeper. So um, you know, I started in in May of 2020, and when the that we were, you know, like eight weeks into the pandemic. And um I think it was really hard to go out and shoot. So if I was launching a production company. Um, I ended up pivoting to podcasting because you could do that from your home and from studios, and the technology was easier. I had never really fully focused on podcasting, I'd always been in television. So that was a new fun skill set to kind of learn and understand and and, and what makes a podcast grow and, and um make people interested to tune in. So so we have been focused largely on podcasting, and um now we're kind of looking at other avenues. Um One is somebody who I deeply admire, Madeline Albright. We have, we have her final interview essentially before she passed away, and so we are looking into turning that into a documentary. And we're also looking into uh, the reality TV space as well. So lots of uh, interesting projects, I think, coming down the pipe.
0: Yeah, that's exciting. And you talk about entrepreneurship. So one of your podcasts is specifically um, about economics and women. Tell us more about that and how you got into that, and um, I guess explain more of like how that passion even started for you.
1: Uh, Yeah, I think it's really during COVID, I think the disparity of the haves versus the have-nots were really stark, and also I think part of it is my own entrepreneurial journey of realizing, you know, it's not easy to start a business from scratch, from from nothing, and finding capital, and, and bringing in income, and Um, But I was still fortunate than most people, you know, because we had a little bit of savings and we also had parents. If everything were to completely fall apart, that's a good safety net. Most Americans and people around the world just don't have that safety net. So um, what motivates me more now as I look ahead in projects is how do we rise up people who might not be from major metropolitan areas, but still have incredible ideas? How do we help them become entrepreneurs and give them the tools to succeed and for their ideas to bubble up that could really
0: contribute to society and and this country? Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah. And I think, you know, even in this journey, I've met a lot of people on Instagram because of the pandemic and a lot of women entrepreneurs. And it's so great to hear their stories of their passion, which may have even been either a hobby or a side gig, how it became their job during the pandemic. Um, And they're like trying to look for those resources to be better entrepreneurs, you know, so it's not, it's, so they are taken seriously because they are women and they're trying to break through, um, especially with different products that I, and I'm more in the food space. So I'm thinking about different food products and women-owned businesses. And it's so great to hear how these women are taking charge and taking a stand for what they believe in because a lot of them are locally sourced and fair trade. So, yeah, I'm so glad that you're doing
1: all of that. Thank you. No, I think it's an important mission. And I also feel like there's no greater form of activism than entrepreneurship and and putting forward what you believe should be um,
0: in society. So, How would you encourage a listener who is unfamiliar with your background, whether it's your Indian background, your media background, um, even being a working full time, the even working full time, but also being intentional with the ways that you parent and be a wife and take care of your home? Because I think a lot of women struggle with that. Of how do I do, you know, quote unquote, do it all. Um, what, how would you encourage a listener in, in
1: that aspect? I think, um, learning to be forgiving of yourself because you're never going to hit a home run every day. Like nobody has that kind of batting average, but sometimes for me, I, I set goals for the day, um, the night before I kind of map out my day. And, um, I set intentions for the week of, of what I kind of want to map out. And then, um, it, it it all goes to hell in a handbasket. You know, it never really goes the way you plan. So I think learning to be flexible, you know, I, I often think about what are the skills that I want to impart in my kids before they leave. And I think being resilient, learning to get up every time you're pushed down, no matter what people say and what people do. I think that's one trait that I, I really try to get my kids comfortable with failure and not being afraid to fail. In fact, On Ask Lisa, the Psychology of Parenting podcast, we had a mom who is 42, and she's a three-time Olympian. Her name's Lauren Regula. She's amazing. And one of the things she said that helped her to become an athlete, you know, in her 40s, continue being so prolific, is her dad every day at the dinner table would say, how did you fail today? so she normalized failure so when she failed it didn't feel it wasn't as painful I guess yeah. um, and, and I think we're so we're just held up to these standards and you've got to do this and you got to do that and there's just so much to do each day and the pressure and so um being comfortable with failure I think is something that my parents instilled in me that gave me room for that um and that I think I'm so relentless about moving forward in different directions um and and i think that's important.
0: Mm-hmm. I love that that you know normalizing failure because i think most people are, have a fear of failure. Yes. But honestly, we all fail mm-hmm. all the time. So it it actually is normal. It's the way we perceive it i think it's is right. what needs to change for us, right? Absolutely right. Yep. A fun question. Like what is something that's um stereotypical of your culture? or background that is actually true
1: stereotypical hmm i think that some people might say that indians are just such hard workers you know all work and no fun um and, and i think that my parents generation really did work very very hard and i think people don't realize how that has paved the way significantly for future generations. So while I think it might be a stereotype that's legit, I also think it's been a stereotype that served the community to advance as from other immigrants as quickly as we have been able to financially Mm -hmm. um, because of that hard work and determination.
0: I agree. Like When I was growing up, I think my dad had at least two to three jobs at once and, and a, or like a main job and like two to three side hustles and everyone I knew had that same thing. So it was interesting to think about you're preparing for one career. Like, so when I have my side hustles, it's interesting to people. I'm like, oh, this feels normal to me. Like I grew up where this, you know, everybody did this.
1: Right. No, it's it's such a great point. And, and I think there were so many sacrifices that they did coming to America um, and trying to figure it all out. That I mean, I, I think that in many ways is being entrepreneurial of, of trying to get out there and reestablish roots and a family. And um and and I commend them because I think they don't get enough credit for for having made that move.
0: Our parents are like amazing for all that they did to like leave what was comfortable for them to make this bold move to America, like. Yeah, they are bosses like all of them. Yeah, no,
1: absolutely. And I think also
0: they're fortunate to have had
1: that opportunity. I think there are so many people in other countries where visa lines are just far along that people don't get presented that opportunity. So um, I'm grateful for the journey that they made and their hard work, but I'm also grateful that our community Many of which, particularly from Kerala, the moms, uh, there was a nursing shortage in the 70s in the U.S. And that led to a lot of um, women from Kerala to be able to come over to the U.S. because of that. Um, But I'm grateful that that was an opportunity and an opening um, where the seas really did part and allow people to come in. Because um, I think often as a foreign correspondent of the places I've covered where the people are just desperate to come with you back um, and they'll never get that opportunity. So I'm also grateful for that.
0: Yeah, and tie into that, what I try and tell people is, I think it's, I'm going to mess it up. It's either 1965 or 1969 when they changed the Immigration Act and they started allowing Asians to come to the U.S., which opened that door so when there was that nursing shortage, our moms could come, but that's all because of the good trouble from the civil rights movement. Civil rights. That's right. And people don't realize it's it's a long journey, and the, the path was paved for us because of what Black Americans did to stand up for all of us, and it wasn't just for them, but all kinds of discrimination if you didn't look a certain way in America.
1: That's very true, Jesse, and, and a great point that you flag out of the Civil Rights Movement that that was born, and then um, essentially a decade later, paving the way for our parents to come through, but it was because of that struggle that took place before our families immigrated. And, and it's an important lesson and a reminder of history um, of the cost that other people, the price other people paid for us to be here.
0: Yeah, and then for us to pay it forward in standing up for justice for everybody, absolutely. right? Absolutely right, absolutely. Yeah. Um, do you, as a, as an Indian, do you have a curry plant?
1: Ah, okay, this is um a sensitive issue because I have always, I've tried twice and um, one the first time I actually embedded it in our local garden here in Connecticut, our community garden, and it didn't really, wasn't loved enough, I think. Um, and then I tried here, but because it gets so cold in the winters in Connecticut, it has been hard. So I do constantly, if you were to go into my freezer, I always have frozen curry leaves, which yeah. I, I don't think are exactly as good, but good enough for when you need it.
0: So now that I think of it, you grew up in Florida, so you probably had it in your backyard. Bushes and bushes and bushes. Yes. Yeah. I grew up in New York. And so we had our plant inside in the winter and put it outside in Mm. the summer. And I don't know what my my parents have some sort of like voodoo going on because this plant is in the house and it's like three feet tall and they have to cut it back every time they bring it in after the summer. And yeah, it's just prolific. So we have had like the baby plants distributed to all our our families. And I've told my children, this is how you know that you're like successful as an Indian adult. It's you can. Keep a curry leaf plant alive <laughs> in your house. So. That's
1: so well said. I know. I clearly have not met success because uh, <laughs> I'm still buying from the local Indian store um, when I need it. it's in my freezer, but but no, it's always I'm um, I, I, you know, I do eventually want to move to Florida and I, I kind of tell myself that that's when I'm gonna have my own curry plant fully uh, fully grown and and yeah. working.
0: That's fun. Okay. if you had a choice, chaya, tea, Coffee or like some other beverage. Like your go-to beverage?
1: Oh, definitely a good, a good authentic South Indian chai. Yeah. Yeah. Do you
0: put cardamom in it, or do you always? Leave it- always. always. Yes. Anything Sometimes- else or I
1: just the- cardamom? Um, I grind the cardamom seeds um, and then I put a little sliver of ginger, um, and then I let it boil. And I-, I usually don't put sugar in my coffee, but I do add a little bit to um, the chai. Um, I think it makes a difference.
0: Oh, agreed. Like sugar in the raw, like that real. Yes. You know, the sugar caramelizing in with the milk and Mm -hmm. the cardamom. 100%. Yes. How do you make yours? I, when we grew up, we always had it with no spices, unless there was company, then we'd put cardamom in it. And then my daughter actually spent a summer learning Hindi in Madhya Pradesh and her Mm -hmm. host mom would make it with like the North Indian masala chai method with the fresh ginger, cardamom, clove, cinnamon, mint. And so when she came back, she started doing that. And first I was like, eh, that's too much. Like that's that's not how I do it. But now that I've aged and I know now the value uh, like um, health wise of all those spices, yeah. I actually, in fact, I just right before this interview did a pot of that because I'm like, I know it's good for me. And, but I do definitely need the sugar and the raw and the whole milk to be all cooked in there.
1: Gosh, you're really making
0: me crave a cup of
1: chai. So, so when I'm done with this podcast, I'm going to put ginger, cardamom,
0: cinnamon, and And what else?
1: Clove. Cloves. And just like
0: one clove, a tiny piece of fresh cinnamon, you know, not, not ground. When you marry all those spices together, it's hard to distinguish each of them. You just drink it and you're like, I'm being hugged. From the inside, yeah, like that. It, there's like a
1: comfort, like mac and cheese level comfort that you get. Exactly. And actually, my my son really loves chai. So he, he is. is 12, and he would drink that every day after school and in the mornings if I made it for him. He really enjoys that.
0: You're a good mom to give
1: your kid chai. <laughs> I know so, they're thinking that they're too young and and you don't want it to stunt their growth, but so many people have have had it over the years. I think we're good.
0: We're all good, and you know that. The amount of caffeine in black tea is so much less than coffee. That's right. And your husband's tall, right? He's very tall. Yeah. Your kids are (laughs) tall. Is there something that you would like listeners to know if they are hesitant about making a bold move in their own lives? I would say listen
1: to your gut. I think the older I get, the more in tune I realize that... It's like a homing device. It, you know, it really tells you where to go and 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 the path to move forward. And I think so often we discredit that. And I think it's important to to pay attention to that voice. If you're passionate about it and you can't stop thinking about it, that's always another indicator to me that I need to move forward and do something about it. I think, you know, as I've moved into entrepreneurship, there have been so many things dangled in front of me in different directions to go and. Some have made sense, others haven't, but I found that when I can't stop thinking about an idea over and over again, I know that's my signal that this is the right path to take.
0: I totally agree with that. I think it's the sense of pay attention to your body and to your reactions of what you're responding to. So that whole passion is not being able to stop thinking about it. So there's a reason why you're still focused on it. So that's wonderful advice. Thank you. No, I, I agree with you. Do you have anything that you would like your listeners to know about what's going on with you, anything new coming up and how they can find you?
1: So I'm on Instagram at rena ninen, and you can follow at Good Trouble Prod, P-R-O-D, to learn more about the company and what we're up to. And then I've got the Ask Lisa podcast, at Ask Lisa Podcast, the, the, um, biggest compliment I've ever gotten was when people who are not parents say they listen to the podcast and um, they get a lot for their mental health um, and, and understand what's happening in the brain. So um, I welcome that as well. And so, yeah, I think if you follow our handles, you'll kind of get a sense
0: of uh, what's new and uh, what's happening. Thank you, Rena. Yeah. I feel like what you're putting out there is so valuable. People out there can trust that if people are putting in the work that I see you doing, that Lisa's doing, what your company is doing, that it's trustworthy. And so I really do hope people will tune in and listen and be able to see that what you're doing is good trouble for a reason. And it's helpful for all of us. Oh,
1: I love that. Thank you so much. And thank you for what you're doing. I really believe in content creators like yourself who are finding content and interesting stories to tell in communities that really haven't had a light shown on him. So congratulations, Jess. It's a great podcast and I enjoy um, all the guests that you have on uh, are so unique. And clearly you have a relationship with them because I was telling you earlier, I, I love seeing the warmth um, between you and and the people you choose. Thanks, Rena.
0: That's so encouraging.
1: <laughs> yes, keep it going. Keep it going. We need more people like you
0: pushing out good content like this. Well, thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Isn't she amazing? I love Rina Ninen. I've watched her for so many years and it's so great to see the way her career has evolved, how she's incorporated all these passions into her life. I hope you were encouraged. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to some of the past episodes, I guarantee all of them are gonna give you some sort of encouragement that you're going to need for yourself. So make sure you hit subscribe. You can also head over to our website, beingbrownandbold.wordpress.com and find all the links for all the shows. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Being Brown and Bold. We will be right back here next week to drop our next episode. Till then, be wise and be bold. And maybe make yourself some chai as well. Have a great day.